Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, it's time for another Beeson Podcast that features a classic sermon, this one by the great Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., This sermon was preached on December 9, 1962 at the 6th Avenue Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama on the occasion of the installation of a new young pastor, Dr. John T. Porter. He had been away in uh, Detroit. He's from uh, Alabama originally. He'd gone to Detroit to be a pastor. He had originally served with Dr. King at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, so they had a long association. But he'd gone to Detroit. Now the church has called him back. There's great excitement about the beginning of a new ministry, and Dr. King has been invited to come and preach the installation sermon. But Dr. Smith, tell us about his text and how he develops it. Dean George, he selects for this um, occasion a text out of Luke 11, a parable. And it's the parable of a man who was awakened at midnight because his neighbor had a friend who unexpectedly visited him and wanted to borrow uh, loaves of bread to uh, provide hospitality for his friend. This is a special occasion. It is the installation of John T. Porter. And he preaches this sermon from the thought or the title, A Knock at Midnight. This is the all-encompassing metaphor, and he uses midnight as a time of warning and a time of great decision-making and as a time in the life of the church when some great decision has to be made. He really is dealing with the role of the minister Mm -hmm. in grappling with societal ills. So he'll take this metaphor of midnight and say it's midnight in three orders, the social order, and he'll deal Mm -hmm. with what's going on in society internationally, nationally, and locally. It's midnight in the psychological order, what's taking place there. And then finally, it's midnight in the moral slash ethical order, and that the church needs to be aware of that. What I really like about this sermon is that he weaves the text with application throughout the sermon so that it's not delayed and suspended until the Mm -hmm. end and everyone stays with him. I know that you noticed how the crowd response rose and the passion uh, was felt and lifted even more when King began to challenge the black church. Mm -hmm. As you said, he's even-handed. He's balanced. He speaks to the white church. He speaks to the African-American church. And deals with the fact that the black church exist in two forms. Those churches that freeze up uh, and are cold in their worship and those churches who burn up, Mm -hmm. who are hot in their worship, but are unyielding when it comes to any kind of ministry outside of those four walls. I like how he slices off pieces uh, from this parable and injects it, actually, into the atmosphere of what's going on in the African-American community. He says, uh, in dealing with this idea of bread, that the neighbor knocked on the door for bread, that that people are going to be coming to the church looking for bread, and the bread has to be kept fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bread of faith, people are losing faith. Nihilism is, is uh, running rampant. Uh, the bread of hope, uh, people are losing hope and have uh, come to a place of giving up, and then the bread of love. 
he takes this from 1 Corinthians 13, 13 and contemporizes it and says this must be the position of the church. Uh, as he closes the sermon, uh, he reaches to uh, the spirituals. Yeah. And there's this litany of of uh, spirituals that he links up with the African-American experience, this whole idea of faith, hope, and love, and says, in recalling the experience of black people, you know what it was like uh, to be able to not have shoes and and uh, not to have robes and all of that. But there will come a time, eschatologically speaking, yeah. where all of God's people be able to say, I got shoes, you got shoes, all of God's people got shoes. And when we get to heaven, we're going to put on our shoes and walk around God's heaven. He accentuates the positive and he closes the sermon uh, in an affirmative note. It's testimony. I've seen the lightning flashing. I've heard the thunder roll. Mm. I've felt sin's breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I've heard the voice of Jesus telling me to still fight on. He promised never, never to leave me, never to leave, never to leave me yeah. alone. So, as he said, midnight signals that it won't last always. It's night now, but the morning is coming. Now, keep in mind that this sermon was preached in December 1962. That's right. On the eve of that momentous year, 1963, that witnessed not only the March on Washington, but also the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church right here in Birmingham. Exactly. There's a lot of tension in the air when this is beginning to unfold, not only in the life of this church and the culture, but all around. And Dr. King speaks into that tremendous moment, historic moment, in the words of Jesus from Luke 11. So let's join that great congregation at 6th Avenue Baptist Church, December 9, 1962. The voice of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and a sermon, The Knock at Midnight. I would like to use as a subject from which to preach, as I think of this installation occasion, a knock at midnight. I'd like to read as a basis for our thinking together a few Verses from the 11th chapter of the Gospel as recorded by St. Luke. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Now, this is a parable dealing with the power of persistent prayer. 
but there is much in it that we can use as a basis for analyzing many of the problems of the world today and the role of the minister and the church in grappling with these problems. The first thing we notice in the parable is that it is midnight. It is also midnight in our world today. We are experiencing a darkness so deep that we hardly know which way to turn. It is midnight. It is midnight in the international order, or to put it another way, it is, it is midnight in the social order. When we look out on the international horizon, we see the nations of the world engaged in a dangerous and bitter contest for supremacy. Atomic warfare has just begun, and bacteriological warfare is yet unused. Guided ballistic missiles are carving highways through the stratosphere. And nuclear tests are still taking place with the ominous possibility of poisoning the very air we breathe with radioactive fallout. And that is the danger that all of these things will conspire to bring an untimely death to the human family on this globe. It's midnight. And the midnightness of the social order is seen in our own nation. Yeah. Let nobody fool you. In any nation where it is necessary to have more than 12,000 troops on hand to see that one Negro young man is able to go to an institution supported by tax money is in the midst of midnight. It is one of the strange ironies of history that in a nation founded on the principle that all men are created equal, Men are still arguing over whether the color of a man's skin determines the content of his character. It's midnight. In a day when the governor of a state like Alabama will stand up before the nation 
and have his lips dripping with words of interposition and nullification, and seeing that he will defy the very law of the land, then it is midnight. When men will burn down houses, it's a dark night. But when they will burn down the house of God, it is a dark midnight. And everywhere we turn, we find ourselves wandering through a dark and desolate midnight. It is midnight in the social order. But not only is it midnight in man's collective life, not only is it midnight out there, but it is midnight in here. Men and women by the thousands and millions are harrowed by day and haunted by night with paralyzing fears. Clouds of anxiety are floating in so many of our mental skies. People are more frustrated and worried and bewildered today than in any period of human history. The psychopathic wards of our hospitals are filled today. The most popular books in psychology are books with titles, Man Against Himself. The neurotic personality of our time, Modern Man in Such of a Soul. The bestsellers in religion are books like Peace of Mind, Peace of Soul. And the popular preachers are those who can preach soothing little sermons on how to relax and how to be happy. And so often we've retranslated the gospel to read, Go ye into all the world and keep your blood pressure down, and lo, I will make you a well-adjusted personality. of the fact that it is midnight in the psychological order. Not only that, it is midnight in the social order, I mean in the moral order. Midnight is a time when all colors lose their distinctiveness. And everything becomes merely a dirty shade of gray. In the modern world, all moral principles have lost their distinctiveness. And so for modern man, that is nothing absolutely right and nothing absolutely wrong. It's just a matter of what the majority of people are doing. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. 
This is the idea that pervades our nation and our world. Well, nothing absolutely right and nothing absolutely wrong. To put it in sociological lingo, morality becomes a matter of group consensus, and uh, the more ways are the right are the right ways. And so we go on down this dangerous. Dark midnight believing that that is nothing absolutely right and absolutely wrong. It's just a matter of what the vast majority of people are engaging in. And we've come to believe that you discover what is right by taking a sort of gallop poll of the majority opinion. And then midnight is a time when everybody is seeking to get by. The ethic of midnight is an ethic of not getting caught. This is the dangerous ethic that prevails today. The idea of getting by, and so nobody is too concerned about obeying the Ten Commandments. They are not important at midnight. Everybody is concerned about obeying the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. So according to the ethic of midnight, it's all right to lie, but uh, just lie with a bit of finesse. It's all right to exploit, but be a dignified explorer. Don't, don't be a thief, be an embezzler. It's all right even to hate, but dress your hate up in the garments of love and make it appear that you're loving when you're actually hating. Don't get by. This is the tragedy of this dark midnight. Midnight in the moral order. And so we find ourselves surrounded by this threefold midnight experience, midnight in the social order, midnight in the psychological order, midnight in the moral order. But as in the parable, so in our world today, the deep silence and darkness of the midnight happened to be interrupted by a knock. And in our world today, it is the knock of the world on the door of the church. No one understands that knock better than God's creature. If anybody in this church understands the knock, it is Reverend Porter. The world is knocking on the door of the church. Today you have in America more than a hundred million people, a little more than a hundred million people, with their names on the rolls of some church or synagogue. Now, back in 1929, there were only 50 million. This is an increase of about 100%. And within that same time, the population has only increased 31%. It 
reveals that even though there are still a number of people outside of the doors of the church, that they are still knocking. And even in a country like Russia, whose official policy is atheistic, they tell us that the churches are bulging over on Sunday morning. And the government is getting a little disturbed about But it does reveal to us that men are still living with the idea that the church has an answer to their individual and collective problem. And they are knocking. In the parable, that man wanted three loaves of bread. Well, and in our world today, those who are knocking are in quest for three loads. Yes, well, they are longing for the bread of faith. Yes. Living in a day of colossal disappointments, with one towering frustration piled upon another. Men have lost faith in themselves, faith in their neighbors, and faith in God. And in the midst of this, they are crying out for the bread of faith. And then they are seeking the bread of hope. But in the modern world, the light of hope has gone out to a great extent. And millions of people are roaming wearily in the dark chambers of pessimism. And so many have come to believe that life has no meaning. Young men and old men unconsciously find themselves crying out with the philosopher Schopenhauer. Life is an endless pain with a painful end. Life is a tragic comedy played over and over again with merely slight changes in costume or scenery. Millions of people today are crying out with Shakespeare's Macbeth that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Millions of people today are crying out with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Well, a crust of bread and a corner to sleep in. A minute to smile and an hour to weep in. Oh, yeah. A pint of joy to a peck of trouble and never laugh that the moans come double and that is life. Yeah. And in the midst of this agonizing midnight, Men are crying for the bread of hope. Then they are crying for the bread of love. Everybody wants this love. So many things are happening in the world today to make people feel that they are nobody. To make them feel that they do not count. In the shackles of discrimination and the manacles of oppression, so many people 
feel that they are things rather than persons. Hovered up in big cities and mass population. Caught in the modern tendency of depersonalization, so to speak. So many people feel that they are little more than numbers. This is the drift of life. The little baby is born in the world of his mother. His maternity case, number 504. And as soon as he is fingerprinted and footprinted, he becomes number 1008. Then he begins to grow up and finally gets a job in a factory and soon discovers that he's number 1219. Pretty soon he's called to the army. He discovers there that he's number 706 in Regiment 503. He may make a mistake in life. Finds himself in a prison and he becomes number 1824 in cell B. Then comes the day when he comes to the end of life. And he has his funeral in a modern situation. And so it's in parlor 206. Preacher number 14 given the eulogy. Choir director number 10 taking care of the music. Flowers number 102 decoration class B. And so he goes through the whole of his life caught in the shackles of numbers, feeling that he's merely a card in an index. And in the midst of all of this, he cries out, saying, I want to be loved. I want to feel that I'm somebody. I want to feel that I'm more than a number or an index card. In the midst of midnight, mother man cries out for bread. The bread of faith, the bread of hope. The bread of love. Come with you, Will, back to that parable with me. What's that man as he knocks on the door? See him standing there, knocking. And then within you hear a real, terrible, disappointing retort. I'm asleep, tired. My children are in bed. Don't disturb me now. Don't bother me now. As if to say I don't have time to be bothered with you. And so at that dark, agonizing midnight at first this man on the outside was left disappointed. I must say to you this afternoon, This has so often been true of the church men have knocked on the door. And so often they've been left disappointed. Look over to South Africa today. There you will find more than 12 million black men and black women segregated on 2% of their own land. And see Chief Latuli As he knocks on the door of the Protestant, the Dutch Reformed Protestant Church, what is the answer? 
get away from here. We ought to be easy in the comfortable isolation of our stained glass windows. Get away from here. We know that segregation is a part of the will of God. God was the first segregationist. This is the answer. So chiefly, truly, 12 million black men and women have been left standing outside wanting the bread of social justice. They've been left disappointed. Look in America today. And think about the fact that this morning at 11 o'clock, millions of Christians stood to sing in Christ, there is no east or west. When the millions of Christians stood to sing that, they stood in the most segregated hour of Christian America. And the most segregated school of the week was the Sunday school. Think about it. Millions of dollars a year going over to Africa for the missionary endeavor, a great thing to do. The Southern Baptist Convention gives as much for missions as any convention you want to see. That's a wonderful thing. But if one of those Africans that those missionary funds go to help would come to the United States and visit the church that sent the funds, he would be kicked out of that church. You know I can hear God speaking. Seems that I can hear him saying, get out of my face. I don't hear all of your melodious anthems. I don't hear the cosmic outpouring of your beautiful hymn. Get out of my face, your hands are full of blood. I can hear him say to Amos, I'm not merely concerned about your long prayer. I'm not merely concerned about your eloquent sermons, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty street. I can hear him saying through Micah, I'm not concerned about the fact that you're building a lot of billion-dollar churches. I'm not concerned about the broad and impressive expanse of your religious education building. The thing that I'm concerned about is that you will do justly. You will not mercy. You will walk humbly with God. That's what I'm concerned about. This is what God is saying even to the Southern Baptist Convention and every white church in the United States of America. He's saying you've left my children disappointed at midnight. You have been slumbering and sleeping in a chamber of pious irrelevancy. And now, if your gospel is going to have meaning, you're going to have to open the doors of your churches, your hospitals, your church-related schools, and make it clear that out of one blood, God made all men dwell upon the face of the earth. This is what he's saying. Now, I don't want you to accuse me of being chauvinistic, and, 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 and I don't want you to accuse me of uh, just getting on to white Christians. The Negro Church, 
has often left men disappointed at midnight. You see, there are two types of Negro churches that have left men disappointed at midnight. All right. One uh, freezes up and the other one burns up. <laughs> now, the one that freezes up is a church that uh, goes out and boasts that it is a dignified church. And uh, it talks and boasts about how many professional people it has in the membership. And uh, it, uh, it, it, it goes on and really gains a great deal of uh, satisfaction from its exclusiveness. We have so many doctors, and we have so many school teachers, and we have so many lawyers, as if the other people don't count. <laughs> Church is that it, it becomes cold. The worship service is dull. The preacher preaches nice little essays on current events. And uh, the choir sings nice little songs that they don't get in too much. And if one Sunday they decide to sing a Negro spiritual, the members bow down in shame because this reminds them of something they don't want to think about. It's not in line with their class consciousness. Now you can see the danger of this church. It ends up little more than a social club with a thin veneer of religiosity. Fails to see the great power and meaning of the gospel. All right. Loses the power of the whosoever will, let him come, doctor. Yeah. And so this church ends up freezing up. Right. Men come by. And they're either turned away because... They don't have that certain level of education, or they are either given a little stale bread that has been hardened by the long winter of a morbid class consciousness. All these churches have left men hungry, friendless at midnight. Now there's another church that burns up. It is a church that uh, reduces worship to entertainment. It is the church where the minister is more concerned about the volume of his voice than the content of his message. It is the church where people have more religion in their hands and feet than they have in their hearts and souls. It is the church where people confuse muscularity with spirituality. This church has also left men hungry at midnight. 
They came by to get a little bread and they found people playing with religion. They came by to get a little bread and they found people in an entertaining center making the church a little more than ecclesiastical gymnastics. They came by to get a little bread and they discovered that they didn't get it there because the bread that they needed Needed to be emotionally satisfying, yes, but also intellectually respectable. Yes. Oh, yes. So they were left standing there hungry yes. at midnight. God is speaking even this day to the Negro church. We have a marvelous opportunity to make God's kingdom a reality. And to be the true church, to inject within the veins of religion new and powerful meaning. And he's speaking to us today. Come again with me to this parable. Even though this man was disappointed, he kept knocking. The man had cursed him out and told him to get away and disappointed him, but he kept knocking. There's a big word that I read. It's the word importunity. You know what that word means? It means uh, persistence. It means uh, uh, sticking to something. It means uh, staying with it. it. It means just keeping on, keeping on. It just means just going on and going on and going on in spite of, not giving up. Because of his willingness to keep on keeping on, something happened. Now, as I use my imagination here, I want to tell you why I believe he kept knocking. That man had no illusions. He was not there having a good time at midnight. Midnight is a time when men are in desperate. Somebody's coming by here. Perplexed by the uncertainties of life. Agonizing because of the contradictions of history. They're going to want the bread of hope. You must keep your bread fresh enough so that you will be able to imbue them with the conviction that God has not left this world alone, that he is still working through history for the salvation of his children. Somebody will come by here. It may be some young person who has committed some great sin. They will come with a great sense of guilt trying to find the bread of forgiveness. They tried the nightclub and they couldn't find the way out there. They turned to excessive drink and they couldn't find it there. They discovered that the more they tried to drown the guilt feeling, the more they engaged in the guilty booking act. So in the midst of their agony, they would run to the church of God. You've got to be able to give them that something that will turn them to Christ. 
But Christ, too, can provide the bread of forgiveness. The Christ, too, can change. The Christ, too, can change a Simon of sand to a Peter of rock. The Christ who can change a persecuting Saul to an apostle Paul. The Christ who can change a lust-fested Augustine into a Saint Augustine. They will come wanting back. Then there will be some persons who've been through the morning of childhood. They moved on through the noon of adulthood, and now they're coming toward the evening of life. Death is not too far from them. They are caught up in the fear of death. They're going to run by here. Wanted a little bread to tie them over the chili dog. Somehow your bread must be fresh enough. Let them know that death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness. But an open door that leads men into life eternal. Your bread must be fresh enough. Let them know that this earthly life is merely an embryonic prelude to a new awakening. Your bread must be fresh enough. Let men know that death is not a period which ends this great sentence of life but a comma that punctuates it to more loftier significance. You must be able to give them the bread of hope and the bread of faith. Keep the bread fresh. And finally, this man just really wanted enough bread to tide him over until the dawn. His cry for the little bread was really a cry for the dawn. He knew that midnight was not here to stay. He realized that midnight was merely a temporary phenomenon in the universe. Probably he had read that magnificent passage in the psalm. Weeping may tarry for the night. The joy cometh in the morning. If you go back to the Hebrew word tarry, it really means to dwell for a night as a lodger. Weeping may dwell as a lodger with you for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Our Negro foreparents, our slave foreparents rather, realize this. They knew about midnight. They didn't have anything to look forward to. But long, drawn-out rolls of cotton, sizzling and sweltering heat, the rawhide whip of the overseer. They were taken away from their homes, taken away from their backgrounds taken away from their heritage, taken away from their language. Often children were taken from their parents. So many of the women were forced to satisfy the biological urges of the old mean boss. And as soon as the children were born, they would be snatched from their hands like a hungry dog snatches a bone from a human hand. They knew about midnight. 
So when they thought about midnight, they would sing, Nobody Knows the Trouble I See. They knew about it. But then before they could get through singing that, they knew that morning would come. And so they would start out singing something else. I'm so glad the trouble don't last always. They had lived with the darkness of slavery. They had experienced its shackles and its chains. But they knew about God and they knew morning would come. And so they could look out and begin to say, by and by, by and by, I'm going to lay down my heavy load. Know my robe going to fit me well because I tried it all at the gates of hell. They would get up at midnight. It's a terrible midnight when you have to walk down a long road in bare feet. No shoes on your feet and you're just walking down the roads endlessly. Day after day and evening after evening getting up when you can't see and and getting off for work when you can't see. Day after day they went shoeless without shoes as they marched up those rows of cotton. It was midnight then. But then something told them morning would come. And they started singing, I got you. You got shoes, all of God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, I'm going to put on my shoes. I'm just going to walk all over God's heaven. I got a robe, you got a robe, all of God's children got a robe. When I get to heaven, I'm going to put on my robe. I'm going to shout all over God's heaven. This tells us, my friends, at midnight is not here to stay. That dawn will come. That morning will come. I want to close by mentioning an experience, an experience that came to me. Thousands of people working together in a community not far from here. An experience which revealed to me that sometimes the most starless night Maybe just that darkest moment, just before the dawn of some great fulfillment. For more than 11 months, we had worked together in Montgomery, Alabama to try to integrate the buses. You know the story. Then the mayor of the city came out saying, we are tired of this mess. We are tired of this boycott and this carpool. We're going to get rid of it. We're going in the court to seek an injunction on the basis of the fact that this carpool is a public nuisance. Now, you remember the carpool was the way we got people around the city. When I read that, that the mayor was going to do this, I knew that he would win that easily in an Alabama court. And then came that day that I got my subpoena to be in court. It was on a Monday. We were to go on trial that Tuesday. And all day long I was bewildered and frustrated. I said, how in the world can I face these people in the mass meeting tonight? 
All of these months we've been struggling. All of these months we stayed together and stayed off the buses. And now they will begin to think that we've led them down a blind alley. Oh, you can never know the frustrating moments that come when you find yourself in leadership position. Moments when you find yourself wondering whether you're going forward or backward. Moments when you begin to wonder whether the very people that you're seeking to lead out are sympathetic and concerned about what you are trying to do for yourself and them. And I can remember that day all day long I said it seemed now all of our struggle has been in vain. It seemed that we are going to end up here losing out without any kind of victory. But then I finally got up enough courage to go to that mass meeting at the Bethel Baptist Church that night. And I made my speech that night, and I hardly knew what to say, but I said to the people, I must honestly say and admit to you that our carpool would probably be enjoyed. I don't want to mislead you. But we've had a faith that has led us on for all of these months. We've had a faith in God, and he has led us through. And I believe that even in this, he's going to make a way for us out of no way. I don't know what it will be. I don't know what will happen. But I believe this, and I go on with this faith, and I call upon you to have this faith. Even after I said these words, I could still see that the people were kind of down and out. Who breezes of pessimism were blowing all around that audience. We went home that night, and it was a dark night, darker than a thousand midnights. We got up that Tuesday morning, Ralph Abernathy, SSA, and E.D. Nixon came by the house, and we started our trek for the courthouse. We got there and just caught us court, and they started arguing the case. Our lawyers argued brilliantly, Attorney Shores and Billingsley and Hall and Fred Gray and Lankford. That our carpool was a voluntary pool and not any corporation making a profit. It was non-profit. But even in spite of this, I saw that Judge Carter was leaning toward the position of the city. But then the clock started moving around toward noon. And I saw Mayor Gale get up and move back in the back room. And I looked over to Commissioner Sellers, and I saw him moving over in the same room. And I looked at Judge Carter, and he was getting a little jittery on the bench, and he said the court would be recessed for ten minutes. Then by that time, a man by the name of Rex Thomas from Associated Press came over to me. I was sitting at the table with the lawyers as the chief defendant. And I said, Dr. King, here is a statement that has just come across the wire. And I believe you would be interested in it. And I would like your comment. And I looked at it and it said uh, this morning, the United States Supreme Court unanimously ruled that bus segregation is unconstitutional in Montgomery, Alabama. And I started running around, giving the word to Ralph and Solomon saying E.D. Nixon and I heard a sister jump up 
on the back seat and said, Brad, God Almighty, God done spoke from Washington. <laughs> Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no position there? I just want to change his question mark into an exclamation point and cry out with the slaves of old, there is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. Sometimes I feel discouraged and feel my works in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a bomb in Gideon to heal the sin-sick soul. And I don't mind saying to you, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I've felt sin bakers dancing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone. With this faith, we will be able to adjourn the councils of despair and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. This will be the day when the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.